Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan. This is our first episode here in 2017. We hope that all of you guys had a fantastic holiday season, be it Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, New Year's, other celebrations, Festivus for the rest of us. Yule. What? The winter solstice. Dude, I was more excited about the winter solstice than anything else, just because living in New York... Like, New York is not even particularly northern, but I mean, I grew up in Arkansas, and the difference in sunlight between Arkansas and New York is something that I, like, am still really sensitive to, and I am so happy that the days are getting longer. Yeah, it, it is nice. Did you see the sunset yesterday, Jonathan? No. Oh, it was particularly beautiful. All right. Well, I'm glad that everybody listening to this after the fact, who is not even in New York City, uh, knows that. On the 29th of December, 2016, the sun, the sunset in New York City was particularly beautiful. Let that be stated for historical wow. record. This is the horizon <laughs> of sky number one. There's only one of me. All right. Anyway, I just wanted to say thank you, everyone, um, for, you know, for listening. And thank you for letting us be a little more flexible with our release schedule around this time. We we're all just kind of super busy and I think everybody was just super busy and sometimes it's hard to get together and, you know, find the time to read and then talk about reading and then put all the dominoes in place before they can fall down. So, yeah. And you listener, you probably didn't have any time to listen to podcasts anyway. You were so busy cooking the Christmas goose and getting and wrapping presents and and eating pie and eating latkes and lighting the Kwanzaa candles that you too, listener, uh, probably did not even have any time and are way behind on podcasts. I know I sure am. And uh, and so welcome back. It's 2017, everyone, and it's time to it's time to crack into the back half of Cloud Atlas. <laughs> Let's All do right. it. And uh, this is an exciting way to start the new year off because, like we said last time, uh, we are now revisiting previous stories, which is a, a first for us in our journey with Cloud Atlas. Yep. We welcome back Sandmi451 and her story. Indeed. And as we do every week on this show, we're going to catch up with the reading with the readings of last week. However, since we're now switching into a more complex part of the novel where we're returning to past stories, we're also going to reflect on the past story as well. So, uh, Sky, how about you take it away and let us know what happened or how about you take it away and remind us what happened in last week's reading, um, Slucius Crossan and everything after. Uh, good old Slucius Crossan and everything after. Uh, Slucius Crossan is the tale of Zachary, part of the Valley People on the Big Island of Hawaii in a post-post-apocalyptic world. Uh, at Slucius Crossing, his father is murdered by the warlike sort of savage Kona people, and his brother Adam is enslaved by them. Uh, he then describes uh, his life in the in the Valleyman uh, society, and uh, he describes Merinim, a prescient who is possessing big smarts, um, who is from an ad- a technologically advanced uh, group of people who travel around in boats. Merinim stays with Zachary and his family for quite a while, um, in which time uh, she slowly reveals to him her sort of advanced ways and philosophies uh and then they climb up the uh the uh volcano um what's the volcano's name hold on oh uh mauna kia uh Mauna-Kia. which is a real volcano Kia, is that how that is pronounced uh, i don't know i mean i went to hawaii when i was eight and i remember saying mauna kia but that does not mean that i am correct <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, please excuse our poor Hawaiian pronunciation. Uh, when they return shortly after that, uh, the Kona raid and uh, sort of enslave or kill all of the Valleyman people, and Marinim and Zachary just barely escape the Kona, and Marinim takes Zachary to the island of Maui, where he lives out the remainder of his days, so says his son, uh, who is sort of editing this story at the end we learn that uh zachary's son uh possesses the sony that had belonged to his father where he can watch uh the horizon horizon of sanmi 451 uh but cannot understand 
uh, the ancient language, presumably Korean, I guess. Um, and that's the end of that story. And then we return. Uh, let's see. Zachary's son asks us to look at this Horizon of Sanmi 451. And that's what we do. We get the end of that story. All right. So, uh, Katie, you want to remind us before we talk about the end of the story what the beginning of the story was about? Yes. So, the uh, an Horizon of Sanmi 451 is an interview that's conducted between Sanmi 451 and this person who is called the archivist. So, basically, Sanmi 451 talks about her experiences as a fabricant, or in other words, a clone, and uh, this particular story is set in the far future in this corporocratic society called Nea Socopros. And basically, she talks about her life as a fabricant. Fabricants are, um, like, workers, essentially. And she, her particular workstation is Papa Song's restaurant, which gives us very strong, uh, thoughts of a McDonald's, a futuristic McDonald's, and they're kind of kept at bay by drinking this stuff called soap, which is soap, I guess, and uh, keeps them kind of dim and not inquisitive. Um, They have, the fabricants all have the desire to, uh, when they become 12 starred, is this thing, when they reach a certain age, they are taken away to what they call exaltation. And that is their promise to that they get to go away on Papa Song's Ark. So that's kind of their ideal. And throughout this story, Sanmi451 tells us about her interactions with Yuna939, who was another fabricant, who started to show these irregularities and develop this uh, odd personality. And uh, eventually did some things, killed a dude, and then Sanmi451 actually gets a, taken away herself um, be- to begin her new life outside of this restaurant, which is all she'd ever known. And she is taken by, oh, what's the dude's name? Mr. Chang? Mr. Chang, yeah, that's right. Mr. Chang comes and... and and rescues her, so to, so to say, and she then starts to learn things about the, out, the outside world by looking at Sony's. She meets uh, this dude, Heiju Im, who is a grad student, befriends him. Okay, so after she's been hanging out with, with the students and going to school for a while, she is kind of on the run with Heiju, and then uh, some dudes are totally about to capture them, and Heiju M basically says, I'm not who I said I was. And dun-dun-dun, we don't know what that means or what is going to happen to Sanmi451, except for we kind of do. Because she's giving this at uh, before her execution. And now, the conclusion. And what's interesting about, like, the second half of this story is, I mean, there's a, things take a very different turn, but the second half really is not so much story-driven as the first half was. I mean, a lot happened in the first half, and the first half really established a world, um, and the second half kind of complicates it a little bit, you know? Yeah, it really, I mean... Um, both in sort of style and narr- and like the content of the narrative, um, this really feels different than the first. It's obviously set in the same uh, like universe in the same world, um, and the first part of Sanmi Four Five One was really dedicated to sort of building that world. But uh, this feels like a almost like a different thing. Yeah, and I think part of that is because Sanmi Four Five One is really seems to be driving the second part of this story more than the archivist is. Yeah. And one thing, 
I mean, you know, we, we end Sanmi with a twist. Heiju M says, I'm not who you think I am. And we also ended uh, Cavendish with a twist. Uh, he, there's, he blacked out somehow. We don't really know what happened. And then kind of before that, even the twist was that he was like put into this assisted living facility. Um, we ended Louisa Ray with a twist or on a cliffhanger because she was put into, you know, like crashed into the, she was driven over the side of a bridge into the ocean. Um, we didn't really end Frobisher with a twist and we didn't really end Ewing with a twist, but we ended him in media res. So, you know, we get back here and Heiju M, as it turns out, is a member of Union, the kind of terrorist organization that opposes unanimity. And uh, em Emmanuel Goldstein, basically. <laughs> um, and what I thought was funny is because, like, the way that she, the way that Sami experienced the story before her, which was Timothy Cavendish, is like it was made into a movie. And they were like watching kind of an illicit copy of this movie. And they were interrupted halfway through watching the movie. And so that's why our reading of Cavendish was interrupted halfway through. Um, so she says like immediately, <laughs> we abandoned the ancient Cavendish to his, to his fate and fled to our own. Um, but basically they're running away. And the first thing that happens really is Heiju M takes out a knife and slices the tip of his left index finger and takes out what she says, a tiny metallic egg. He threw it out of the window and ordered me to discard my soul ring. Similarly, she Lee also extracted his soul. So the thing that was in his finger and she was wearing a ring for the same purpose. I mean, it's not a sci-fi trope unique to cloud Atlas by any means, like the idea of embedding a, like a sensor or something in your body to scan, uh, represent who you are. And, you know, here they call it a soul because all of the uh all of this society is set up around your value as a consumer basically um but in in the greater light of the book as a whole i think it's really really interesting that that david mitchell chose to call it a soul since so much of this book is about like reincarnation as so, a concept yeah yeah so and i shared I, souls. i didn't really yeah and i didn't really think about that until this you know, I got to this section and like rereading it, you know, this is the second time I've read this book. I didn't think about that the first time or the first section on my second rereading, but now I'm like, Ooh, every time they talk about souls, you know, they're not just talking about like within the corporatic universe. They're talking about, it's also like kind of David Mitchell talking about the work. Um, so then they kind of run away and they have to kill Shi Lee. Uh, they, well, they euthanize him. It says, because, Unanimity uses these kind of like poison darts, I guess, that they render. It's like a toxic poison that inflicts huge pain, but also there's like a like a stimulant aspect that keeps you from passing out. So you just like stay there and scream. So it gives you a location away. Like that's a pretty nefarious tool. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of awesome. <laughs> like so I, I don't know. Oh, go ahead. It's, oh, it's, it seems kind of fitting for this corporatic society, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 essentially like torture as both a weapon and as a like locate like locating like a police tool or or whatever. Um Yeah. It's um yeah. it's almost like torture as intelligence. Yeah. Oh wait. Um, wow. I sound like I'm talking about the Bush administration. <laughs> well. Well then. Yeah, I uh I mean Man, we picked one hell of a time to read Cloud Atlas, didn't we, guys? We sure yeah. did. Um, uh, so then they go to, like, a slum, because it turns out that even though everything is, like, strictly controlled, there is still a slum. Um, and, in fact, Sonny kind of describes that the slum is strictly controlled to be a slum, because you need a place to point at and tell good citizens, like, you don't want to end up there. You have to behave. Um at the same time, there are people that are just going to be a drain on a for-profit system, and you need to be able to kick them aside. Uh, Bef so. Before they get to the slum, though, something happens that I uh, highlighted because it was another event that linked us to a past story, kind of. 
Oh, I didn't even think um, about that. Yeah, so it's it's right after uh, they have killed Shi Li, and the uh, the Ford like goes over this incline and then free falls, and she has this feeling of deja vu. She says. Um, uh, the Ford gathered speed, weight, and weightlessness. The final drop shook free an earlier memory of blackness, inertia, gravity, of being trapped in another Ford. Where was it? Who was it? So this is clearly r- recalling back to Louisa Ray. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That part was good. There's, there's a lot of, like, going over the bridge imagery and, like, situations in this particular section. That I think that... Um, that going over the bridge part of Louisa Ray is referenced maybe like at least three times maybe more well there's there's a reference to that and then there's a reference to um to timothy cavendish oh yeah how's that um so it's later when uh like they get out of the car and they uh meet these two um rich consumer folks and they are like tossing a tiny fabricant over the railing oh okay yes and I mean, that made me that made me think of the the dude throwing the dude off the roof in the beginning of timothy cavendish oh yeah oh but it's also like they're throwing a woman off, like an evil man is throwing a woman off of a bridge which is also right. like a parallel to louisa ray right right yeah so it's a double reference um, guys <laughs> yes so they go to this slum, and one thing I, I highlighted, just because it's a, an adequate, adequate kind of, this is what happens when you make things before profit. It says Medicorp mm-hmm. opens a weekly clinic clinic for dying untermensch to exchange any healthy body parts they may have for a sack of euthanize. Like, <laughs> like your yeah, life that is was so a- miserable that you will sell your healthy body parts to die. Yeah. Like, what? Also, if we remember, uh, Frobisher talked about Nietzsche a lot because didn't Ayers? Ayers liked Nietzsche. And now they call the lesser people in this section, they call them Untermensch. So. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a lot of. Uh, I think this book has a ton of like Nietzsche references, Nietzschean references throughout. There's a, a lot of talk of the will at the end of this section. Um, I think that's like a theme. I wish I was. Uh, yeah, I had it more than a sort of cursory understanding of Nietzsche's philosophy because I feel like I would get more out of this aspect of the book. <laughs> um, so after, like, wh- while they're here in the slum, they have, like, a, an encrypted communication with the leader of Union who presents as a carp. Yeah, that was great. Like a, vis- a visual disguise. Uh, and then they go to a plastic surgeon where... Sanmi gets her face kind of redone so she's no longer recognizable since there are like hundreds of copies of Sanmi out there. Um I like I like the name though it's Face Scaper, right? Yeah, Face Scaper. That was Face Scaper. That's great. And then as part of this process, they also have their identities replaced. Um and what I found really interesting is this is like another reference to, you know, the the souls. So it just says the man laid my right palm on a cloth, spraying coag and anesthetic onto my right finger pad, made an incision less than a centimeter, inserted a soul, and applied cutane. This time, his cynicism betrayed a core of sincerity. May your soul bring you fortune in your promised land, sister you are you. I just, I, I thought it interesting, like, that he's saying, may your soul bring you fortune in your promised land. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting baptism. Well, and it's just, like, interesting within the context of the entire work. Uh, how and so? Well, if we're thinking about soul, uh, references to soul in this section not only being to the soul that is in this world of Sanmi 451, but... The soul of the, the character we've been kind of following. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, is it's kind of established in Slusha's Crossing that Zachary, the narrator, is not the soul, but rather Miranem is. So like is oh we're ta- we're talking about the soul like the the sort of the, the uh, shared the, the comet marked the, uh like recurring character in the in, yeah. throughout all the stories yes yeah yeah 
Is is that going to be like our official name for this person, like the soul? Let's, well, we can call, let's call them the comet, I guess. I don't know, or the reincarnate, the doctor. <laughs> My vote is for the comet. I like the comet. I like the comet. It makes it sound like this person is an amusement park ride. <laughs> yes. I was gonna say a a cheesy superhero, but hey, or or like a, a, a like a scrubbing powder. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh boy. Um. That's too much. That's too much like soap. Oh, exactly. That's why I went there. Um, <laughs> I like this quote. May your may your soul bring you fortune in your promised land. As a way to look at the kind of different narratives of the comet person. Um, so oh. after this, they kind of escape the city, and they spend a night in a like a manufacturing facility for fabricants, and that's kind of just to like, hey, Sonmi, look at what this is like. And there are some int- interesting allusions to like birth and like fertility and like this as a as a stand-in for the womb effectively like a mechanical womb uh in this section it becomes really obvious why the wachowskis might have become interested in this book because a lot of this is very similar to the matrix Mm -hmm. um but then after that this whole whole section the sonmi 451 section like both halves are you know sort of in that tradition of the matrix and uh, and its predecessors. So it's like, yeah, the Wachowskis would have been like born to direct this particular part. Yes. And it is here that Sanmi discovers her purpose and like why Union is interested in her. Because remember, Sanmi is just like a fabricant that kind of ascended. So why is all of a sudden she being protected by people who are like putting their lives down in front of her? Uh, as it turns out, they want to use the process union, the counter rebels um, want to use the process that brought her to Ascension on all fabricants in the entire society at the same time. Uh, basically saying that the society depends on slave labor, which is fabricants. So if you make the fabricants ascend, then the bedrock of the society is going to collapse. Right. And uh, additionally, Yuna 939 was the prototype and Sanmi 451 was the backup, which that's clear to see now seeing this, this plan. Yeah. Um, after this, they continue along. And this is really the first time we get to something that's off the grid. They go to an old pagoda. It was a, basically it said it was an abbey for 15 centuries before the corpocracy shut down religion and now it's kind of a gathering place for people like her um people who are off the grid and need affectionate people or you know it, it, it's that kind of place it's a sanctuary um but what i found really interesting here is that there's a person who leads this who's called the abbess now if you recall in Slusha's crossing they worship sanmi and the leader of their religion is called the abbess yeah that was pretty cool the the monastery that the abbess uh runs is a buddhist monastery and um there's a great scene with a large statue of the buddha um and it's uh it's interesting like the journey that sanmi 451 goes through in this section mirrors the buddha's sort of own formative process right like Sanmi, you know, is watching the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavanish and living a, like, weird life of luxury, at least temporarily. And then she is sort of brought into a knowledge of, you know, not just high, what high society is like, but what every level of society is like and what, you know, uh, sort of how dire the conditions are for uh, people in the slums um, in a way similar to, like, the story of the Buddha. I thought that was cool. I don't think any of the other characters in Cloud Atlas have this sort of like Buddha narrative in their story. So I think it's, you know, that's a, that's a cool parallel that isn't part of the whole wider thing of the book. I don't know. Do you guys Mm. think maybe we have uh, other Buddhas in Cloud Atlas? Um, not really that I'm seeing. No, I don't think so. Mm -mm. Maybe, Uh. maybe Adam Ewing, um, you could make a case for. We'll wait until we finish this story to talk about that. <laughs> we'll uh, have to okay. see. Yeah. But what I was going to say is this brought, this brings 
up an interesting point, and I think now is the time to talk about it. Um, the, Zachary grew up worshipping Sanmi and having an abbess that led that worship. However, we also find out in his narrative that it wasn't until really kind of the end of things that he encountered the horizon of Sanmi. And even when he did, he didn't speak Korean, so he doesn't know what they're saying. So clearly there's a way that Sanmi's teachings or tales or whatever got to him without I'm... the you know without this story so like he had experienced her story or her concept not through the text that we're reading similarly Sanmi is watching a movie of Cavendish but we are reading Cavendish's memoir so she experienced the story that we read but she experienced it through a different medium than we're reading and in fact like a movie version is a it's an interpretation of the text rather than you know a literal translation furthermore we've talked about the fact that Louisa Ray is probably a fictionalized character within the world of Cloud Atlas like you know so Cavendish is reading what has been submitted to him as fiction and contains largely fictionalized elements it's not really until we get to Louisa reading Frobisher's letters or Frobisher reading the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing that we are reading the exact same text, having the exact same experience of the previous Comet Soul as the current one is. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, was that too too much? No, that, I mean, that makes sense. The translation is, I think, a big part of Cloud Atlas, which is really impressive for a book written all in English. But... Um... But it's, you know, like, uh, Sanmi for Zachary is a religion, and just like he doesn't speak Korean, like, most Christians today don't speak Hebrew or Greek. Um, or Aramaic. Yeah, or Aramaic, right, which would probably have been, like, the common <laughs> language at the time. So, uh, so, like, that doesn't seem that weird to me, but it does, like, present one of these references to, like, translation throughout all of the different stories in the novel. And I think it, like, every time I try to think about the structure of this novel, it goes back to that idea of the cloud atlas, where it just gets murkier. The more you try to pin it down, the less you really can define what's happening. As many truths as men. You know, as many truths as men. Sometimes I glimpse a truer truth. Uh, (laughs) I forget what the exact wording is for the rest of that but that's that's a sort of buddha-like line twice in the past week and a half have my coworkers looked at something and been like true true you know like that's not an uncommon thing to like repeat yourself if you're a little like hmm yeah i see that i see that um and they, but when both times when they said true true i said you mean sometimes the true true ain't the same as the semen true <laughs> and i got weird looks as um, many, anyway. tr- you, you've gotten weirder looks if you had just like darkly and calmly said to them, as many truths as men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, going back to where we are in Sanmi. So they're at this kind of colony and she's talking to the abbess and really does have, it feels like it's her introduction to morality, like Sanmi's introduction to morality or I don't. I don't know. But we also, I mean, we get more kind of peppering of all of the different worlds, I mean, corporations out there. And it gives us more of a picture of this universe. But, of course, they're on the way out. And what happens next? Well, I'm going to skip a little bit just because I think this is the next important part. But basically... We figure out, we find out what the destination of their journey is. And their journey is, the end goal is Papa Song's Golden Ark. Which Sanmi grew up kind of worshipping and knowing that like when you get 12 starred, this is your destination. Also 12 starred, it's curious that uh, tw- there are 12 cities in Neosokopros. Sanmi reaches freedom when she's 12 starred. 12 is 6 times 2, there are 6 characters each one has a narrative broken up into two parts, except for Zachary. So there are actually 11 narratives or 11 sections to Cloud Atlas. But when we reach the 12th one, we reach Ascendance. I don't know if that's important or not. Um, and since there isn't a 12th one, we never get to reach Ascendance. 
Which is pretty good because exactly. that turns out to mean being slaughtered. Yeah, um, exactly. Yes. So, well, also, since this section is, like, super steeped in religious imagery, uh, 12 is also a very important number and a number of religions. Um, yep. Oh, maybe David Mitchell just left out Judas. I mean, they use the word Judas to refer to being betrayed. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe David Mitchell figured since he, he talked about Judas so much in this novel, he didn't have to include a 12th section about him. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, so they smuggle themselves onto the Ark, and she watches lines and lines of faces she recognizes just because they're copies of the same servers she worked with uh, on their way to, you know, board this Ark to go to Hawaii. Uh, as it turns out... Instead, they get killed, and their organ meat gets recycled to do one of a few things. Either it's turned into, like, biomatter that's used in the, like, incubation process for new fabricants, or it is turned into soap. Soylent green is people! Which Timothy Cavendish yelled out as he was escaping, or as he was trying to escape the whole house the first time. Oh, I um, forgot that he yelled that out. That was I thought yeah. that was a really stupid reference the first time around, but now it makes a lot more sense. Yep. Uh, and right. then the, the, the best cuts of the meat actually get recycled into Papa Song's product. So when you go to Papa Song's, you're eating uh, former servers served by current servers. Yeah. That... If, that, <laughs> if that isn't like the best metaphor for... <laughs> This corporatic society, but also like capitalism. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah. That. Um. I feel like this particular element in the Sodmi story is very much of this time of publication. Like, I feel like in what is it, two thousand five, two thousand six, when David Mitchell published Cloud Atlas, like we're just coming off of like Super Size Me and a lot of sort of exposés and. Uh, a, a like dialogue in the West about um, like animal rights and uh, um, like corporate industrial livestock and like fast food ethics, uh, and this is very much like uh, part of that. I think. Yeah, and so Sami four five one is relaying this to archivist, and then archivist is just completely appalled does not want to believe it at all calls this industrialized evil and i love sanmi's response to that she says you underestimate humanity's ability to bring such evil into being oh, oh man yeah dude again we picked a pretty great time to read cloud atlas hot huh, guys <laughs> so, um, so great so actually what happens from here on out i knew was coming but this is another big twist in the story and i want one of you two to relay this what we learn is that this um opposition to unanimity was actually created and fostered by unanimity and if that's not just perfect i don't know what is like this yes. whole thing was planned this whole sanmi 451 being planted to lead this rebellion which she's she she she's going to write these declarations that are going to replace the um the catechisms for fabricants in hopes that um that it will inspire her successor after she's executed that there will be how many who knows that that could follow her but that but the the idea that this whole thing is created and fostered by corpocracy like yeah, well, and what I love about this, Sanmi basically says that, the, well, okay, the first time I read this, I thought that Sanmi was, like, part of the plan, and, like, she basically knew, well, no, that she was informed. Upon rereading it, I don't think that's the case. I think that she had just ascended to the point that she realized everything. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think she knew either. I agree with your second thought there that she she realized this. And, I mean, she makes a, f a few good points. Like, there's an official opposition because that allows people, like Shi Li, who are just going to be kind of malcontents in the society, that gives them a place to go, and then unanimity can like watch them. 
So the fact that the opposition is controlled means that, hey, look, anybody you can't control, you actually still are. Um, but the, yeah, the archivist says, why did you go along with this? And as it turns out, you know, after Sanmi discovers the whole bit about the cannibalism murder of the fabricants, et cetera, et cetera, she writes these declarations. Um, and she says, I agreed to go on with this because I knew that like my declarations would still achieve fame and people would still read them. And, uh, she even quotes Seneca, uh, saying to Nero, like, you can murder all of your enemies, but you can never murder your successor. Mm. And, you know, what I said a couple minutes ago about how we don't know how Zachary experienced Sanmi or, like, why that religion came up. Now we do. It's her, it's her declarations. They did, in fact, achieve a fame that far outlasted Neosokopros and the corpocracy. Go Sanmi451. Yeah. Um, and uh, she basically says, like, that's the end of it. And the archivist asks, if you, if you understood or if you figured this out, why did you cooperate? And she says, why, why does any martyr cooperate with his Judases? Mm-hmm. Which is, a, I mean, it's super cynical. But, it, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. Because, like, it's basically saying that martyrs are only important figures because they were martyred which is true but it's also a very kind of sacrilegious thing to say you know like martyrs are revered for their devotion or their faith or their dedication or basically for putting a cause before themselves and if they had not been martyred then nobody would care about the fact that they held the cause before themselves you know uh yeah um like basically saying that you care about something so much that you have to die to bring light to it, that you're complicit in your own martyrdom as an act of like media. Um, I don't know. Okay. So at the end of this, uh, section, basically when, when Sanmi four five one begins writing the declarations, um, I wonder, like I was reading this section and, We've talked before in Cloud Atlas about the reliability of some of the narrators. Um, we've, you know, talked about uh, Adam Ewing and uh, Robert Frobisher as potentially unreliable narrators. Cavendish seems to be like a sort of obviously unreliable narrator. Um, but for the first time in this section, I was thinking a lot about whether or not Sanmi451 is a reliable narrator at the end of this section. Well, and that's even brought up because the archivist says, um, you know, aren't there a couple of cracks in your plot where, like, is, isn't it too convenient? And she does say that some some events may have been exaggerated. She also says some... truth is singular. Its versions are mistruths. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing Sanmi says as a character in this book is truth is singular. Its versions are mistruths. She told yeah. her version, and then at the end of her version, she revealed the actual truth. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, um, well, but, like, but should we take her? So this is, I guess, the, the issue that I have. Um, it seems this is essentially the same ending that happens uh, in 1984, right? Um, the, you know, Winston begins working for the resistance, and then, like, shortly after he begins, it's revealed that the resistance is sort of just, like, an arm of Big Brother. And the whole point of it is to, like, you know, it's part of the program of control for the population. And it's also to sort of weed out people like Winston who are dissidents. And so this is the same sort of thing that goes on at the end of this section. But it's not actually clear to me that that is, in fact, what is happening. That's only what Sanmi451 is telling the interviewer has happened and it just like i see i'm not sure i'm convinced it seems to be like from what we know from the first section of sanmi 451 it seems like the corpocracy is really good at like they're really good at making like genetically engineered clones to be restaurant servers but it seems like they don't have their act together in the um in the sort of HR department well enough to be able to pull something off like that. 
You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm just, it seems more likely that a simpler thing is at work and that Sanmi451 is attributing the whole thing to a, to a sort of, like, plot by the corpocracy. Well, here's, here's what I'm going to say in response to this. Mm-hmm. When she goes to the the factory for fabricants, the name of the factory is Hydra Nursery Corp. Yeah. And, of course, Hydra is a beast from Greek antiquity. You cut off one head to grow in its place. Furthermore, we find out that the fabricants being grown in this section are specifically tailored for um, like base, uh, digging uranium from these mines under the, uh, under the ocean. Now, if we go back all the way to Louisa Ray, Louisa, Louisa Ray is trying to uncover the conspiracy about a nuclear reactor called the Hydra Reactor. So there's an immediate and obvious reference. It's like, oh, two things both about nuclear energy, which refer to Hydra. And I mean, there's a, so much of this book is really about nuclear energy, always kind of behind the scenes. It's a danger or it caused the destruction of society, as we discovered in these last two bits. But also then just the idea of Hydra is like you cut off one head to grow in its place. Each character, each, each reincarnation of the comet is facing an evil. And the next reincarnation faces a, like a different evil. It's, you know, like this one person is Hercules facing different version, different heads of the Hydra. Right. I'm just saying that it's not out of the question um, that the that the comet misjudges the exact nature of the evil that they confront. Um, like, it just seems to me that um, the... So, like, in this portion of the story, uh, Sanmi451 is discussing her capture and trial uh, with the interviewer. And it's possible, I think, that she is either convinced herself of an explanation for that capture and trial and, like, a way to rationalize all of it, or she is sort of deliberately trying to deceive the interviewer in order to like strengthen her narrative for future martyr purposes but like it's a lot more simple of an idea that like the government got their actual union cell which was not in fact a like complete fabrication but a, a true like uh a true union cell and then she was like put on you know what i mean like the whole thing wasn't a whole complicated plot it just is a thing that happened because we don't have any corroborating evidence for it being a whole plot she just tells us that but uh you know the everything that happens to sanmi 451 could have like very easily happened as a result of the uh the sort of forces in work in the society but not as a sort of like literal plot Oh, I see. Um, which is, is sort of like in Louisa Ray, right? Um, you know, we I think we talked about this in this episode um, as well, that in real life there are sort of like, you know, corporate conspiracies and intrigue, but they usually don't happen in that kind of like Machiavellian, like evil laughing supervillain way that they do in that story. And we literally get confronted by this sort of like psychopath Nietzsche quoting guy who is, like, obsessed with this plot. And in real life, that's, like, not usually how things work, right? Things happen because of society being structured in a certain way, but that's not, like, w like a conscious plan, you know? The way, that, the way that, like, a conspiracy theorist would think that it is a conscious plan. I don't know. I'm probably not describing this as nicely as I'd like to. The only thing I'm going to add to this, and I don't... You guys feel free to disagree uh, with me. Like this is I'm well. I'm I, I mean, you're you're right in that there's no way we can know if she's being reliable in this section or not. But you know, I I have kept on saying that so much of this book is about like an individual facing a like an institution, mm -hmm. and what Sanmi is saying is you don't even realize it, but your opposition is still part of the institution. So I think each section has its own like approach to that and 
this is a cynical approach to 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 that that narrative right yeah that that was my reading of it but the institution but, is sin- is sinister and powerful either way i think like the the difference is like it's like does sanmi 451 have everything figured out or just most things figured out i think is what's at stake i think she has most things figured out yeah yeah one thing she does not have figured out is what happens to poor Timothy Cavendish. But she, but she, we are to understand that she will now, as will we. Exactly, because the last thing she says is that Seneca quote. And then she says, now my narrative is over. Switch off your silver horizon. In two hours, enforcers will escort me into the lighthouse. I claim my last request. And the archivist is like, sure, what's your request? And... Sanmi says, I need your Sony and access codes because I'm going to download a certain Disney I once began one night long ago at another age. She doesn't specifically say it, but it's pretty clear because the only Disney, aka movie, we've referred to in this section explicitly is The Ghastly Ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. And then, of course, you turn the page and see that we are returning to The Ghastly Ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. So um, you're, you're now seeing that there's a pattern emerging and the way that we return to these stories as well, because at the end of Slusha's Crossing, like basically Zachary's son said, the story's over. Now look at this thing. And we got the rest of Sanmi. And now at the end of Sanmi's story, she says, my story's over. I want to return to Timothy Cavendish. Like that's how we're going to be closing these things out. Yep. Um, I like that last line, a certain Disney I once began one night long ago in another age. Um, And I guess on the surface, Sanbi four five one is referring to like, I, I mean, it's hard to know watching how watching the Disney. Yeah, it's hard to know how uh, much time has passed between um, the beginning and the end of this section. But it, I mean, it might be as short as like a month or two, or it might be as long as well, maybe like three months would be like the shortest it could be. But it, I mean, it's probably more like a year or two, um, and I'm sure it feels like a very distant age to Sanbi four five one. But it also like for us the reader, it definitely refers back to like. You know, Sanmi is revisiting her, like, past life in the form of, um, I guess, Timothy Cavendish. Right. Yeah. That was Comet Soul speaking, too. Yeah. But, I, I mean, there's also another level in which she's saying, like, a new age, not meaning, or, a di- sorry, another age. Not meaning, like, ages ago in my youth, but rather, like, my my act is starting a new age of rebellion. Mm-hmm. Oh, like she's saying, like, a, you know, back before I wrote those uh, reflections that are going to, you know. Yeah, like, I think it, it has all three. Mm. She she truly believes that what she's done, even though she co- cooperated with evil, like, she believes that her declarations are going to outlast her long enough to have a positive effect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot here. Oh, I'll add in one more piece of evidence for my, like, Sanmi becomes an unreliable narrator in the last portion of this interview thing. Um, <laughs> because uh, when, when, the in- when the interviewer expresses skepticism that the, uh, the whole, like, union part of Sanmi's journey was, like, formulated by the corpocracy as, like, an instrument in a plot, um, she says, like, did you not detect? Sanmi says to the interviewer, "Did you not detect hairline cracks in the plot?" And then she lists these like cracks in the plot, these so-called cracks in the plot. And it's kind of like when a conspiracy theorist is like telling you the reasons why they believe the conspiracy theory. And it's like, okay, I mean, I get what you're doing here, but like the more simple answer to all of these things you're putting out is that like life is messy and weird, and like things like that happen. Um, and also, you're constructing this narrative. So, like, you you can put in things like that that are, like, a little too neat or a little too coincidental because you're the one constructing the narrative. I don't know. That's when I started suspecting the, uh, you know, um, the, like, conspiracy aspect. Excuse me. Well, with that, I think we should start to wrap things up here. Uh, my favorite quote from this section was, I, you know, I talked about it, but Sanmi says, Why does any martyr cooperate with his Judases? Did I say mitre or martyr? Mitre I think you said hat. martyr. Mitre oh, okay. is indeed a hat. Why does any mitre cooperate with his Judases? <laughs> um, yeah, so just like what I said about this 
being a cynical take on opposition to uh, an institution means inclusion within it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a couple. Um, I like so when she was unveiling um, this revolution and archivist says that this is uh, this is fantasy lunacy and she says all revolutions are until they happen then they are historical inevitabilities that was great um and then archivist asks her a little later like well what what damage could that really do on society and then she says purebloods no longer possess these core skills upon which our cropocracy or any society rests which is very true um we are all very dependent on the things that we grow accustomed to. Um, I also really like her fifth declaration. It's about how ignorance of the other engenders fear. Fear engenders hatred. Hatred engenders violence. Violence engenders further violence until the only rights, the only law, or whatever is willed by the most powerful. That's pretty great. And then my final favorite and my most favorite from this section is a very simple little line. And she says, uh, no one else has lived this life, which stands kind of in opposition to this idea of reincarnation of this soul, comet, comet soul. But at the same time, sort of doesn't. Is it, is it I don't know. her life as Sanmi451 or is it their life as the comet? Yeah. Yeah. I, there are, I mean, man, this this is a gem-packed section. Um, I actually am going to bring up a line that has nothing to do with the sort of uh, social philosophy in this section, um, of, but there are many good parts there, too. Um, I, David Mitchell, I was talking to a friend about Cloud Atlas, um, and he said, like, you know, at the end of Cloud Atlas, I want, like, I wanted to go back and reread it, but I didn't. And I think it's because David Mitchell's writing does not invite me to want to go and read the, the book again. That's what he was telling me. I don't know whether I'll think that when I'm done. But David mm-hmm. Mitchell's writing is extremely virtuosic and it's extremely impressive, but it's also like sort of cold and distant. There's a kind of distance. Um, and I think sections like this one are rare, but when he does decide to do straightforward description, um, it's it's really impressive. This is when uh, Ancor Apis uh, appears as a carp, and this is uh, Sodmi four five one's description of the carp. A carp, as in the fish, a numinous pearl and tangerine, fungus blotted, mandarin whiskered, half meter long carp. Um, I just thought that was a really cool description of a carp, guys. <laughs> I like that. It, I mean, it, and it it conjures this sort of um it's like this cartoon um uh it's like something out of an anime maybe um and it's uh it's very beautiful all right um well do we have any non-text related suggestions anything we want to talk about so this past week has been another sad one in the world of entertainment. We have lost yet more of the greats and highly influential people. Um, it was it was pretty painful to end a year in which we lost so many people that I can't even remember them all to lose Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds back to back. Yeah. I mean, hell. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with Star Wars. And when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with Singing in the Rain. Like, it was... It felt... It was a pretty devastating one-two punch. Punitive. The only possible, like, warmth or, like, positivity I can find in this is that Debbie Reynolds did not have to suffer the loss of her daughter for more than a day. But I feel so sorry for Billy Lord losing your mother and your grandmother back-to-back. Yeah, it's unimaginable. So this is not uh, something that I've experienced in the past week, but this is actually kind of related. Um, My recommendation is that you go out and you find the novel Postcards from the Edge. It's written by Carrie Fisher. It's a satiric 
reflection on her life. And it was turned into a movie starring Meryl Streep as Carrie Fisher, which is pretty awesome. Um, I, I first picked up this novel in London when I was traveling through Europe in 2013. And four weeks later, I was in an Italian bookshop in Rome, uh, perusing their small English language section. And that's when I picked up Cloud Atlas for the first time. So I actually alternated between those two books and ended up leaving them both at the same lending library in rural Turkey because I didn't want to have to carry them back. I didn't want to add any bulk to my suitcase. Um, so, you know, that book is kind of tied up in my own narrative with Cloud Atlas. It's funny and it's a great way to remember Carrie Fisher and reflect on the fact that she's more than Princess Leia. So I would suggest going out, picking up a copy of that book and and reading it. It's really funny. It's it's a quick read and it's it's, it's very worthwhile. That's Postcards from the Edge. Uh, my recon- recommendation for this week is kind of similar because uh, it's kind of what I've been doing and it is to as loudly and joyously as you can celebrate the art that, that these people have left us with. Whether that be uh, rolling down your windows and blaring some Freedom 90 or in- indulging in our favorite scenes from Singing in the Rain. Just do it and cherish the memories they left us with. Uh, as I've been reading Cloud Atlas, I have been like setting as my soundtrack to reading it on the bus. Um, uh, the soundtrack, Michael Nyman's soundtrack to the film The Draftsman's Contract, um, which is, you know, Michael Nyman is a sort of, um, oh, I know I'm going to mess up describing this. Music nerds, don't at me. He's like a, like a minimalist uh you know contemporary composer who is sort of in the uh uh, tradition of philip glass and steve reich a lot of his things have like repetitive structures and uh and you know they draw upon a lot of like medieval music um and this particular soundtrack uh is for uh the film the draftsman's contract um by peter greenaway it's a i think it was made in the early 80s it's a this art film that is a like bizarre period piece set in early 18th century England that is about sort of the nature of making art and the nature of uh, optics, uh, like seeing. Um, and it it has some sort of, it has some feelings in common with uh, Cloud Atlas, I think. Uh, there's a lot of similar kinds of sort of mental moves going on in it, um, but it's a fantastic film. Uh, you can watch a naked man painted like a stat- statue take a bite into a entire whole pineapple. Um, there's all sorts of other weird things in it. Uh, but it's got this wonderful uh, soundtrack that is this sort of um, repetitively structured uh, music that is played on early 18th century period instruments. And so, like, for me, that is, like, the cloud... It's, like, sort of my headcanon Cloud Atlas sextet kind of thing going on, where, you know, I'm listening to it as I'm reading, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what, like, Ayers and Frobisher were getting up to. <laughs> uh, so the movie is great, as is the soundtrack. I was about to say, from your description, I want to see this movie, so... Oh, John, we should, watch this mov- we should watch this movie together, actually, because it is an incredibly good movie. I, would I, have, it, I have it on DVD. We'll watch it sometime. All right. Well, uh, join us next time, everybody, when we find out what the end of the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish entails. Ooh, ghastly. (laughs) Ghastly, ghastly. Every every time, every time. I see you've (laughs) met my faithful ghastly. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Skye. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening to Interlibrary Loan. You can find us online at illbook.club, and you can send us an email to hello at illbook.club. We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts, and feel free to recommend any books you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are Interlibrary Loan on Facebook and at illbookcast on Twitter, and we love hearing from you. If you're not already a subscriber, You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating in iTunes. It really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help us grow our podcast. 
Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge, and we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far. 